If you, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Genesis. It's pretty, pretty easy to find if you've got your Bible tonight. Right in the beginning. <clears throat> I just want to begin our time together tonight in the Word by um, explaining a little bit about what we're going to do, what our approach will be as we study the Word of God throughout the entire year of 2019. So we'll begin walking through the Word of God together week by week, um, month by month. We'll begin looking passage after passage chronologically, and we'll work through the entire Bible in 2019. It's been said that Bible engagement is the single most spiritually catalytic activity that a person can engage in. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's the most life-changing thing, that the Word of God is the most life-changing thing that we have access to? If you really believe that, I've got a proposition for you. I ask you that, that you participate in the services on a Sunday mornings here as we work through the Bible. Not, that, not just that you participate, but that you also be a part of a Bible reading plan. If it's really something, if it's really the most catalytic thing that we can do, that we can engage in, that would change our lives, really put your money where your mouth is. Grab a Bible reading plan, grab a partner, and go through and work through the Bible. That's, that's one of the most beneficial things that I've been a part of in my life. Even this, mor- even this week, as I thought about, uh, this morning, as I thought about just my act- interaction with folks in my D group, as we study the Word of God together, it's been a privilege and a joy to see uh, my life changed by the gospel, by the very Word of God, and to see uh, those in my D group do the same. And so I would encourage you to get, a, get, get involved in something like this. Um, our discipleship coordinator, Jay Tidwell, would love to, to get some of these resources in your hand. And, and I know in 2019, as we read the scripture together in our homes, um, with our friends, in this room here, even together, I believe that God will grow us and continue to empower us for the work here in Hagerstown. So I want to just encourage you with that. This evening, we'll begin our, our series as we are the entire walk through the Bible. We'll begin it in Genesis. And that's very fitting because Genesis is a book that simply means beginnings. And so as we begin this series, as we begin this church, we're where the Word of God begins. So if you have your Bible, turn with me there to Genesis chapter 1. We'll see in Genesis chapter 1, as we get started right out the gate, that God makes everything. Not only does He make everything, but He makes everything out of nothing. I'm going to put another shameless plug in for my D group. As I was doing my hair journal this week, I I thought about that. And I thought, as I was looking at the, the Word of God, I thought, God made everything. He made it all out of nothing, and he didn't have a template to make it out of. One of the shows that Sarah and I have had the uh, just joy of watching has been a, a TV show. Maybe you've seen it before. It's called Nailed It. Sometimes it's, it's a little over the top. It gets on my nerves a little bit. But in Nailed It, what happens is contestants, their job is to try to make the exact same cookie, cake, whatever it is, decoration. They have to make the exact same thing. They have all the ingredients. And so they, they stand at their tables, at their desks, and they parade out this thing, and they show them, this is what you're trying to make. This is what you're going after. And all these wannabe uh, cake people, confectionery folks, they all get all these, uh, they, all, they get their, their stuff together and they begin trying to make that. And what's interesting is they hardly ever make anything that looks anything like it. Nothing, hardly ever. And so they have a template, they have all the tools, and they still can't make something just like that. And yet God makes everything out of nothing and without a template. Imagine how powerful our God is. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 1. And really, God, he, he, he nails it, right? Doesn't he nail creation? He gets it right. It's perfect. It's beautiful. 
And matter of fact, God says that about his own work. As he, there's this cadence throughout Scripture in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God says he, he, he speaks something into existence. He creates something. Then what does he say right after that? It's what? It's good. And then he says it again. He creates something. And then he says what? It's good. And then he creates something. And then he says it's good. And it goes on and on and on. And it's just this beautiful thing where God's saying, I nailed it. I did it. It's perfect. He says that all the way up until Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And then he says... Instead of saying it's good, he says it's not good. What's that in reference to? Perhaps you, you remember. God's looking at Adam and he says, it's not good that man be what? That man be alone. And so he says, I'm going to make him a help me. And so God makes Adam a help me there in Genesis chapter 2. And uh, God puts Adam to sleep. You know the story. And he takes that rib out of Adam's side. And out of that, he fashions Eve. He gives her and puts her in the garden there. I think it's interesting what Matthew Henry says. By the way, this is just free <clears throat> for all you ladies out there. And for you guys, you'll enjoy this as well. Matthew Henry says, I love this quote. He says, the woman, <clears throat> excuse me. the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So that's, that's free for you guys this evening. So, so God says, hey, this is perfect. This is great. This is good. And then he gets to, to man being alone. He says, that's not good. And he fixes it. And everything's good. Everything's great just for a little bit of time, just a, just a, just a hot minute. And if you look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And there's more to that than just this intimacy. There's more to that statement than just the fact that they had nothing to hide, that they were not ashamed, that this, this beautiful marriage... That was actually just a picture, while that's true of Adam and Eve and their relationship, that's just a picture of what was taking place in, 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 in all of creation. Everything was perfect. Everything was in harmony. God had, God had created shalom. Everything was just the way that it should and was at peace. That didn't last very long, as you know. And so if you turn it to, back just to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, we find out that things, things take a turn. If you think... To this, this idea of shalom. If you think of this perfect peace. Now God, when he created everything, it was good, just as it should be. You're probably thinking in your mind, that's not what I've experienced in my life. You think that's not what I've experienced in relationships. There's been shame. There's been disunity. There's been hostility. As you even drove here tonight, you've probably looked around and said, I've not seen a perfect creation. I've not seen a perfect city. I've not seen harmony between human beings. We look around this world and we see this is a broken world. And in fact, there's, there's no way around it. So what happened? Well, the fall happened. Look with me in Genesis chapter 3. And we'll read verses 1 through 15. A bit of a long read, but we'll, we'll tackle it. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman had saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. 
When they had heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel, or your head, and you shall bruise his heel. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you, would you pray with me this evening? God, we pray that as we look at your word this evening, that you would challenge us, that you'd grow us. Father, that you'd teach us something more about you so we may worship you more truly. Father, would you teach us something more about ourselves so we could walk more holy? Father, would you encourage us as we do the work of planting Hagerstown Church? And this not be a preview service or just some type of practice, but we probably, Father, we pray that you would speak to us even right now, that you'd meet with us. We ask these things of, of, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we walk through this passage, I want to point out several things to you. And uh, there's several things for you to consider. And so here, here they are. There's four of them. We don't have them on the screen. You're just going to have to deal with it. But it's the serpent's guile, God's grace, Satan's head, and Jesus' heel. So the serpent's guile, God's grace, and Satan's head, and Jesus' heel. And so let's begin with looking at the serpent's guile. So the serpent, he was very deceptive, right? And what does he do here? Right off the bat, right in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1, he begins to question what God has done. And he casts, or what God has said, and he casts doubt. Look there in verse 1. He may not initially come out and call God a liar, but he always sows seeds of doubt in the life of a believer. That's his role. That's, his, that's what he's always done. And what happens? He begins to question what God has said, and Eve begins to doubt. And what's his next play? After he, he, he casts a little bit of doubt there for Eve, he just comes right out and calls God a liar. That's not true. What, you, what you've said is not entirely true. And actually what Satan says is partially true. And that's also Satan's play. You see, Satan rarely will come out and just say a blatant, obvious, downright lie that's so obvious. For instance, if I were to tell you tonight that I'm seven foot tall, many of you would say, well, that's, that, obviously that's not true. But if I were to tell you that I'm six foot tall, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more difficult to, to perceive, is it not? I'm five foot eleven and maybe like a maybe like a quarter, but I I'd love to say that I'm six foot tall, but I'm actually not. So there's a lot there's so much more danger danger in a in a truth mixed with lie in lie mixed with truth. And this is Satan's play. He comes right out and calls God a liar. And this is how he's worked in those days. And this is how he's worked up until now. Even tonight, that's what he does. No doubt, many of you have even doubted this week. You've heard the whisper of Satan heard his lies, his half-truths in your life. No doubt that's Satan's work. And it works. It's very effective. Look at what's happened here to Eve. Look what's happened to Adam. Starts with a little bit of doubt, and they move in close to the tree. Now that they're a little closer, they can get a little better view. They hadn't spent a whole lot of time up close to the tree until they began to doubt and began to be interested in this. So now they begin to think about the act as they're close. Now that they're close enough, they touch the fruit. They move in even closer at that point. 
And Eve is actually moved beyond what her conscience would even allow. She thought she wasn't even supposed to touch it. Well, God had not even said that. So she broke her own conscience. Next thing, she eats the fruit and she breaks the one law that God has given her. This is just a vicious cycle and it's a downward spiral. Next, she shares the fruit, we notice. Sin never only affects one person, doesn't it? It hardly ever. When we fall into sin, it always affects somebody else, whether they're directly involved or indirectly. And then as sin always does, it ends in death and they're separated from God. We haven't read that in this passage, but no doubt you know the truth of, of the end of the story. They're kicked out of the garden, separated from God, which is death. So I want you to look around. Is this not what has happened in your life? Is this not what's happened in your family? Is it not over the years as you look back over Satan tempting, Satan feeding lies? Even as you drove here tonight and you looked around, is this not what Hagerstown is full of? These half-truths and this doubt about God and truths about him. Satan's at work. We experience the fall. We see the evidence of it in our lives. We see the, the evidence around it in our families. And no doubt we see it in Hagerstown. This, this fall. So God has created the world perfectly and we almost immediately fall into sin. The curse is upon us. So chapter 1 doesn't end there, though. Thank God. We, we see Satan's guile, but also you should look at God's grace. So you got Satan's guile, but then look at God's grace. Notice immediately, what does God do? When he enters in onto the scene, what does God do? The first thing that he does is he calls out to them. I'm sure that's your play, isn't it? Isn't that what you do? When you, when you come home and you've, you've given the kids one rule, don't make any messes. And if you make a mess, you better clean it up. You've worked hard all day long, and you come home, and you've, you expect them. You fully expect them, and you're tired. You know it's going to be clean. You get in there, and there's Doritos just ground up and smashed into the carpet. There's dirty dishes everywhere. The vacuum hasn't been pulled out. Matter of fact, the house looks like a tornado went through it. And instead of being concerned, maybe your kid was hurt when the tornado come through. You're trying to find the kid, yes, but not for their safety. You're not concerned about them. You want retribution, right? You're going to fix this. That's, that's my play. That's my move, and yet that's not what we see God doing. When God sees and knows what's taking place, he's not surprised. He knows exactly what's taking place. So he goes and he looks for them, and he sweetly calls and searches for them. That's how God calls them. It's interesting here that Satan, in essence, not only calls God a liar when he says that he's hiding something from him, but he's, he's basically saying God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you enough to give you the good gifts. God doesn't love you enough to give you the good things. And yet here, as, as, as God pursues the heart of Adam and Eve, when he comes after them, when they're hiding from him, it demonstrates a love. It demonstrates a grace that Satan lied and said wasn't even there. So not only do we see him call for them, not only do we see him come after them, but we also see that he covers them. Do you notice what happened when Adam and Eve realized that they were naked? What did they do? They sewed together fig leaves. What does that look like in your life? When you sin against God, and you try to fashion some type of a way to cover up your sin or cover up your shame. What does that look like in your life? How do you try to hide from God? How do you try to cover yourself up? It's, it doesn't work. It's an exercise in futility, but nevertheless, we try it as well. And we see Adam and Eve doing the same thing, our parents. What does God do? We don't read it in this evening's passage, but we, we know that God creates skins. He, he, he sheds the blood of an innocent animal. And he gives uh, skins to Adam and Eve so they can have coverings. 
Before we move on, I want to just point out something um, that, that Jesus in John 8, he calls Satan the father of lies. And the reason why he calls him the father of lies is he's actually referencing back to Genesis chapter 3. Jesus in John 8 is referring back to Genesis chapter 3. And he's calling Satan, he said, he's the father of lies. And the reason why he calls him the father of lies is because this is the first recorded lie in history. He says this is where it all began. Satan began this work. This is his play, and it hasn't stopped since. Not only does he do it, but his minions, they follow suit. And those that are under his curse, those that are under Satan's rule, they're marked with dishonesty and deception as well. Lies. In contrast, the book of James actually refers to God as the father of lights. Think about that, the father of lights, which is also a reference back to Genesis chapter 1. So it's really interesting In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see the father of lights. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the father of lies. This is a pretty interesting contrast. And what James is getting at, why he calls God the father of lights is because he's, he's pointing back and he says, remember the guy, God, the one who created everything. That put the sun in the sky that that rules faithfully day in, day out. It's always there. It's always steady. It always brings light. It always brings truth. And the same God who put the moon and the stars in the sky at night, and they're always there, as faithful as it can be. He says, the father of lights. That's what he means by that. The steady, faithful creator. He says, James, James says, he has given all good things. Any good thing that you have, every good thing, has come from God. That's quite a different description. That's quite a different picture of what Satan wants us to believe about God. Satan wants us to believe that, that God is against us, that he's holding back, that he doesn't want us to enjoy, that he, he's a killjoy, rather. And that we see that's quite the opposite. That God, the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning, faithful as they can be, is the one that regularly gives gifts and good gifts. And so... We see the serpent's guile and we see God's grace. But next I want us to look at Satan's head and Jesus' heel. And as we transition into looking at this idea of Satan's head and Jesus' heel and the relationship between the two of them in this passage, I want to remind you that while God is gracious to Adam and Eve and he's gracious to us, he's also not slack concerning justice. God's not going to look the other way. That's not the way that he works. God is a just God and he will punish sin. In this passage, we see that he actually does punish sin. Actually, in verses 16 to 24, which we won't read right now, you're obviously, I would encourage you to read those later, we see a little bit more of the explanation of what happens, the punishment which, which, which is given and dealt out to Adam and to Eve. But for sake of time, we'll just focus in on the serpent. So look at verses 14 and 15. I'll read them again. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. It's worth mentioning here as we read this punishment toward the serpent that that there's actually two levels. This is a multifaceted, dual-leveled curse that is given to Satan and also to the serpent. If you look at verse 14, the serpent, this is given to him almost exclusively. He's the crawl on his belly and to eat the dust. That that curse is for the serpent, for the snake. Then in verse 15, we see that this part of the curse actually applies to both the snake and to Satan. So God says that there will be enmity, there will be hostility between the snake, between the serpent, between mankind. So physically speaking, we see this uh, with the snake, don't we? 
I won't ask you who likes snakes and who doesn't like snakes, but if all of a sudden a snake just was, was discovered slithering through, a large one was just slithering through the middle of the aisle, quickly we would tell who is fight and who is flight. Now, those of you who are flight, you would be climbing the walls to get out of here. Some of you would be broken, diving through closed glass windows to get away. That's how worried you'd be. And others of you, if you're a fight, you might stick around, but you would not stop. You would slash, stomp, spit, snort until that thing was just a semblance of a living creature, what once was one. You wouldn't stop until it's done. And even those of you who say, well, I love snakes. Some of you are probably here tonight. I don't know what's the matter with you. But some of you are probably here tonight. You say, well, I love snakes, but you don't like the hidden ones, do you? You don't like the ones that you don't know where they're at. I, personally, I don't mind snakes unless I, as long as I know where that snake is at, Right? most of us can appreciate snakes, at least from a distance, behind glass. We see this curtain, maybe out in the yard where we can't, we're at a safe viewing distance, right? We see evidence of this curse here uh, on the snake, that there's enmity, that there's hostility between the, the literal physical serpent and mankind. But it's not just that. It doesn't stop there. This, it's, it's a spiritual hostility. It's a spiritual enmity as well between Satan and his minions, his descendants, and Eve's descendants as well. And it's seemingly a never-ending battle between good and evil that rages on and that has raged on almost since the beginning of time. Some of you might think, well, did you just say a battle of good and evil between the snake and his descendants, the Satan and his descendants, his minions, and, and uh, Eve and her, her descendants? And, and, and hear me out. I'm not saying that Eve is, is good and her descendants, and all of them are good, and that all of Satan's descendants are evil. Well, I would say all of Satan and his descendants are evil. Eve's descendants, if you think about it, who is in, who is in, who's being spoken of specifically here when God tells Eve, hey, your descendants is going to have hostility or enmity with the serpent? Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of Jesus. This is what we call the proto-evangelion. It's the first mention of the gospel in all of, in all of the Bible. This is a beautiful passage, Genesis 3.15. It's a wonderful thing to, to commit to memory. But it's the seemingly never-ending battle between good and evil. So God goes on to say that the serpent's head will be bruised by a certain descendant of Eve, of Eve who will have his heel bruised in the process. So we see here this hope, this first time, this hope of redemption. So as we walk through this passage, we see in Genesis, we see God creates the world and it falls almost immediately. And yet, right then and there, God steps in and he gives the promise of redemption. So think about the significance of Satan's head and Jesus' heel. Think about that. Satan's head and Jesus' heel. The, the heel, although I think it's a very important part of the human anatomy, it's, it's far less important, at least I would think, than the head. Instinctively, when we fall, we, we, we go to protect our head, protect our vital organs. That's just necessary to us. I've not, I've not been in very many fights, but we know this. That if it's, it's much better to check a, uh, check a blow with your leg than it would be to take one right on the kisser, wouldn't it? It just makes more sense. So Satan's head is going to receive a bruise, but Jesus' heel will also receive a bruise. And just keep this in mind that if you, if you walk away from a tussle or a, some type of a fight and you've got a bruised heel and the other guy is being carried on, out on a stretcher because of a, of a bruised head, it, it's safe to say that you won the fight. And so when you think about this relationship between Satan's head being bruised and Jesus' heel, it's a good thing. Also think of as they, as, they, as they fight it out, as there's hostility and enmity there. Also think about the relationship between the head 
where it's at, and a person that's standing in the heel of the other, if they connect, it's a, it signifies dominance. Think about it. If, if, if my heel, or if any of your heels are touching my head, that's a signal of dominance. That means you just high-kicked me really good. Or I'm on the ground and you're standing on top of me. And so it's a signal of, of dominance, of victory, of defeat for the one who has the bruise on the head. And so Satan, knowing that Jesus was the very head crusher, that God had talked about, that God had told him in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he sees that Jesus has come and he has, Emmanuel, he has come to earth. Jesus is watching. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Satan's there, and what does he do? He slips right in there, and he tries to derail the whole plan. You see, right after Jesus' baptism, he, he goes out into the wilderness, and right before he begins his earthly ministry, and Satan's there. He begins to tempt him. He begins to try to overcome and attack Jesus. How does Jesus defeat it? How does Jesus overcome it? It's worth mentioning. Jesus, what does he do? He quotes scripture. Satan fails. Satan flees from the presence of God, from the presence of Jesus. Jesus ends up fulfilling his plan and he goes to the cross and he dies in our place and he rose again, ultimately defeating death, sin, and Satan. So Satan, the serpent, she strikes at Jesus' heel. But Jesus rears his, high, his heel high and he crushes down on the head of that snake. And the, and the mouth of that great liar is shut when the father of lights gives his greatest gift. Think about that. The mouth of that great liar was shut when the father of lights gives his greatest gift. So before, before we close, I want to show you something. Not only Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, the Bible says that we will as well. The Bible says that God actually will crush Satan's head, where? Under our feet. If you have your Bible, turn quickly with me to Romans chapter 16, and we'll read verse 20. The context, before we jump into the, the context here is division, false teaching, being taught in the congregation. And so Paul, he challenges the, the members there of the church. He says, hey, you need to look out for people who are, who are sowing divisions. Look out for folks who are um, creating controversy or, or teaching another doctrine here. And he's like, you need to be on guard. Look out for these liars, he says. And he encourages them by saying, soon God will crush Satan under your feet. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So tonight, as we think about Hagerstown Church, as we think about the beginning of what God is doing here in, in this place, even here at Pangborn, I want you to remember this, that while we see the evidences of the fall all around us, even in our own lives, remember this, that God has promised redemption and that we have a hope. So how will God do this? How will he crush Satan under our feet? 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read of Israel's army assembled against the Philistine army in an epic battle, an enormous giant. And the story also includes a brave young boy. And he goes into the valley to stop the mouth of the liar, of this blasphemer. He's calling out things that are not true. And he's saying things to the Israelite army. And he's trying to, 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 to say things that, to make them doubt about the strength of God and the power of God and who he is, his identity. Not just speaking half-truths, but whole, or half-lies, but whole lies against God. So David enters into that valley with the idea that he's going to shut the mouth of that liar. So he fixes his weapon, he mounts his attack, he strikes the liar in his skull, knocking him unconscious, and he walks up and he chops off the head, rendering that tongue useless. 
never to lie again. As the once emboldened Philistines, they become scared and they flee. And they run from the presence of the, arm, of the army of Israel, which was outnumbered and weak. They're now emboldened. And they run through the valley and they chase after the Philistines, following after David. And by running through that valley, do you know what they do? They run and they trample over the lifeless, powerless body of the deceiver. Do you see that? Do you see the beauty in that? That Jesus, a better David, has entered into the valley and he has slain the liar. And he, he's crushed that head. And he'll never lie again. He has no power over us. And now as he chases down the armies of Satan, we follow in after him and we receive the victory along with him. We are victors with him. So Christian, as you consider the fall, that is all too evident here in Hagerstown, in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood. Remember that the promise of redemption that we look forward to, remember that. It's already ours. Jesus has already defeated the liar. He has no power anymore. And soon he will be eradicated. Soon he will be utterly defeated and banished. That's the hope that we have. So as we plant Hagerstown Church, don't lose heart. The evidence of the fall is everywhere, but we have the promise of redemption. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this truth that we see in your word tonight. That we look all around and we see things that would make us lose heart. We hear the whispers of, of Satan that would cause us again to, to not trust you, to not trust the truths of, of your word. We thank you that we have sure word in the Bible. God, we pray that you would help us to be bold. Father, we know that in, in the days ahead of us, there will be struggles. There will be days of doubt. There will be days where we feel like the fall is too great. It's too, it's too much. It's overpowering us. And we pray that we would hold fast to you and that we would believe that you have already defeated. You've already crushed the head of the snake. You've already cut it off. We pray these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.